History had shown us that often successful leaders not automatically make successful fathers. There are some very successful business leaders. There are some who are very successful politicians. There are some who are very successful professionals. And yes, there are some who are successful pastors, who sadly, not successful fathers. Well, this message is not to make anyone feel guilty, but to walk with you in order to strengthen your faith that you will never, ever, ever give up praying. King David is one of those. King David was a great warrior. King David was a great king. King David was a great leader. King David was a songwriter. (laughs) King David was, I dare say, a spiritual leader as well. Yet, he failed as a father. He was so busy doing a great job for the kingdom of Israel that he failed in his most important responsibility. One son raped his stepsister. Another son killed the rapist's stepbrother. And to top it all, his son Absalom conducted a coup d'etat in order to topple his father from his throne. So much so that for a period of time, Absalom actually took the reins of power in Jerusalem. And to make things worse, King David had to flee and run and escape from his palace just to save his own life from his own son. Powerful, successful King David was on the run. He was on the run. And while he was on the run, away from his home, away from his family, and away from his subjects. David sits down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pins those words in Psalm 28. It's a prayer, and only those who have been through the pains of the circumstances of life, only those who found themselves to be totally desperate will be able not only understand this psalm, but relate to David. David found himself with a broken heart, tortured emotions, and torn kingdom. And David found himself in this pathetic plight. Now, remember, he had seen some tough days. He had experienced some heartaches in the past, but none like this one. This is the most painful of all. So he sits down, and pins those words of Psalm 28. In Luke chapter 18, the Lord Jesus tells a story with a very distinct purpose, and that is to teach us never, never to give up in prayer. And that is why I began the message by saying, even if you feel that you have failed as a father or a mother for that matter, even if you feel that you failed in any way, let me tell you, there is hope in the Lord. So never give up. And that's why Jesus tells that story. It is a story about an unjust judge. Today we would call him a crooked judge. And this crooked judge had a poor widow appeared in front of him. She wanted him to adjudicate. She wanted him to vindicate her from her injustice that she's been experiencing. This judge, being crooked that he was, he operates on the basis of receiving bribe from people. 
but he knows that this woman is poor. She can't afford to give him a bribe, so he basically ignores her. He refused to look into her case. He refused to vindicate her. So she kept on knocking. She kept on pounding on his door, and she would not give up pounding and pounding and pounding until finally, just to spare himself the persistent pounding, he decided to do the right thing by her. What is Jesus saying? He is saying to us that God is the exact opposite of that judge, that God is not like that judge, because God is just, God is fair, that God always, always does the right thing for His children in His time. Here's the point. If an unjust judge, if a crooked judge can do the right thing just simply because of that woman's importunity, how much more would a gracious, merciful, just, holy judge of the universe will do for His children who are calling upon Him day and night. The Bible, beloved, makes it very clear that Jesus told this story to teach us that we must never, 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 how many nevers? Never give up praying. Amen? That is bold, persistent, consistent prayer. I believe with all my heart that those who give up praying when they know in their own hearts that they are praying and their prayers are consistent with the Word of God, they are praying knowing that they are praying according to the will of God, they give up too soon. They give up too soon. This prayer, Psalm 28, this prayer is really a song. If you look at it in the Hebrew language and how it's designed, and it is really a song and has three stanzas in it. The first stanza is verses 1 to 2. David is placing a confident request. The second stanza is found in verses 3 to 5, and there he presents to the Lord a reasoned request. And thirdly, you find here that David, in the third stanza, verses 6 to 9, a cause for rejoicing. You ready? Let's go through them. The first stanza, in which he presents a confident request. Now, don't miss this important part about his confidence. He comes confident to God. Where does his confidence come from? The rightness of his cause? No. It's very right. Nobody can argue with that. Is he saying, God, look what I've done for you, and you owe me something. That is self-righteousness. No, that's not what he does. But his confidence comes from knowing who God is. He says, to you I call, O Lord, my what? Rock. That's who he is. So let me ask you, do you know why the Bible refers to God and later on the Lord Jesus as the rock? It's because a rock is a symbol of changelessness. 
A rock is a symbol of the immutability of God. A rock is a symbol of the permanence of God. A rock is a symbol of the invincibility of God. A rock is a symbol of the immovability of God. Listen to me. No one can call themselves the rock except the Lord Jesus. Amen? But there's something else here that I don't want you to miss. This is the amazing contrast that you find in this psalm. (laughs) I want to explain that to you. David and his world are falling apart, but God is what? David's world is crumbling, but the Lord is what? David's world was sliding. In fact, his throne is sliding from under him, but God is the what? David's power that at once seemed to be invincible and was victorious over all his enemies, all of them. But now he's on the run. But God is what? David's security is melting before his eyes, but God is what? David's subjects, they turned on him, even some of his friends. But God is what? Let me ask you this. Have you been there? Have you been there? Well, some of you may be there now, going through it now. So I want you to listen very carefully, please. When everything seems to be going great, and everything in life seems to be humming just as it should be, all of a sudden, everything begins to fall apart. All of a sudden. The company that you are counting on, it goes belly up. The business deal that you have been working for falls apart. The marriage that looked solid, the health that you are proud of, all of a sudden, your world begins to fall apart. Do what David did. Do what David did. Go to the only one who is unchangeable. Go to the only one whose love for you does not ebb and flow. Go to the only one whose stability toward you is unquestionable. Let me ask you another question. When your world seems to be collapsing in front of you, do you go to God or do you blame God? I've been around long enough. And see, the first thing people do is blame God. (laughs) When you are betrayed by someone that you thought was near and dear to you, to whom do you go? Do you become angry with God for that betrayal? Which he has nothing to do with it. (laughs) When you find yourself in trouble because some of your own choices, some of your own wrong choices, do you cry to the rock of ages or do you falsely accuse him of not protecting you from the consequences even of your own choices? David's confident request stems from knowing who God is. Never once do you see here or anywhere else that David feels that God owed him something. In our culture today, everyone seems to feel that they're entitled. There's an entitlement culture today. They feel that God owes them something. They feel that the government owes them something. They feel that their parents owe them something. They feel that the church owes them something. (laughs) 
when it comes to God, please listen to me, He owes us nothing, and we owe Him everything. People with that entitlement mentality never accomplish anything great, never accomplish anything worthwhile. And David said, Hear my cry, O Lord, for what? For what you owe me? For what I've done for you? No, 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 no. Hear my cry for your mercy. See, David figured that if God is not hearing him and does not have mercy on him, he's as good as dead. Now, beloved, I fully identify with that. I often say to the Lord, without your mercy and without your grace, I'm a dead man walking. There are times when I have completely blown it in my life, and I go to God, and literally I go on all fours. <laughs> I said, oh, Lord, I don't have the right to ask for anything except your promised mercy. Lord, the only confidence I have is in your mercy. Lord, the only assurance that I have is your mercy. When David penned those great words inspired by the Holy Spirit, obviously he was sensing that God has been silent. Have you ever experienced the silence of God? You might be experiencing the silence of God right now, but he has a purpose for that. And David is appealing to the Lord to break his silence and answer his prayer. And David is saying to the Lord, Lord, I am as good as dead if your mercy does not break your silence. And so David says he holds his hands toward the holy place. That is a symbol of the presence of God. He's lifting up his hands to the Lord. This is a sign or a symbol of passionate expression to implore God. When Moses did this on the mountain, Joshua won the battle. When Jacob wrestled with God, God heard his cry. When Jesus sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, the resurrection took place on the third day. Secondly, he calmly reasoned with God. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Listen to me. If there is a successful propaganda from every side, from education, from the media, from if there is a successful propaganda that invaded the minds of this generation, it is this, that we must never judge anybody about anything. Right? Don't judge. Even the people of Manchester, England, after the horrific the vile act of terrorism at a concert in Manchester, England. The next day in schools, the teachers said to the student, don't judge the terrorists. Instead, sit down and write them a letter. And this propaganda across the globe, it's not just in America. This whole media campaign about not judging anyone about anything, no matter how vile it may be. Beloved, this is Satan's way of rationalizing and justifying all sorts of evil. I personally think 
that he's preparing the world for the Antichrist. Now, if you cannot see the devil's authorship of this propaganda, I honestly don't know what to tell you. (laughs) Back in 2004, I read a story that absolutely shook me. True story of a college professor. He was teaching his class about the evils of Hitler and Nazism. And while he was waxing eloquently, this young Jewish lady in his class, just think about this, this breaks your heart, a Jewish student, she piped up and she said, who are we to judge them? See, that's where we are. That's where we are. While the Bible from cover to cover encourages us to call evil, evil, sin, sin, and whether it is committed by somebody else or is in our own lives. You see, if we don't know how to judge sin in our lives, then we have no right to judge anybody else. Himirat, please, because the beauty about David's calm reasoning with the Lord is that he does not reason based on his self-righteousness, but rather based on the character of God. David already approached God by confessing his own sinfulness, but he does more than that. Look at it with me. He does not begin his prayer or his song by asking God to judge the wicked. No, he doesn't begin there. He begins by asking God to keep him from being dragged into the wicked's evil schemes. John Wesley said something that I often quote, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, there go I. David is aware of his own propensity to sin. David is aware of his own propensity to behave like the wicked people do. And that is why he begins by confession that apart from the life-giving, sustaining power of God's Word, apart from the life-giving, sustaining power of the Spirit of God, apart from the life-giving, sustaining mercy of God, he could have been swept away with the wicked. And he would have been among the ranks. Don't miss what I'm going to tell you. When David was praying for justice, he was not praying just as an individual who believed in his Lord in the Old Testament. He was a man who walked with God. You read his Psalms and you see this. But he was not praying as an individual. There's a difference between you and I pray as individuals and the leader of a country praying. He's praying here as the king of Israel. He's praying here as the governor. You see, it's one thing even for the a head of a state or a head of a country to pray if he's a believer, and he would pray and he would even forgive the sinners. And it's a whole different ballgame for him who placed an authority to exercise justice and to punish the wicked, as Romans 13 says. Now, evil must never, never, never prosper regardless of how you feel toward those who commit that evil. And we must pray for their evil plans to be frustrated by God and to be destroyed by God. Sadly, today, many under the guise of compassion, they can have more compassion toward the criminal than the victims. 
They want to protect the civil rights of the wicked more than those who suffered from their wickedness. Uh, they want to protect uh, the rapist than the rape victims. They care more about the rights of a child abuser than the children. Now, beloved, this is wrong. This is evil, and we must never acquiesce to it. We need to pray that God will keep raising up leaders with a sense of justice and indignation against evil, for that's what God calls them to do. We as individuals—I remember back in September 11, and so many people running around saying, oh, we need to just forgive the terrorists. We need to forgive the terrorists. I said, yes, you and I must. We have no option, but not the leader of the country. He must exercise justice. In fact, God calls the government for one thing, and that's to protect the citizenry. That's the job. That's God's calling on their life. Confident requesting, calmly reasoning, cause for rejoicing. All of us, whenever we get into trouble, whenever we get into a fix, we pray. We cry to the Lord, right? We ask others to cry to the Lord and pray on my behalf. Great. Keep doing it. Don't stop. But here's the thing that I have seen through the years. When God answers that prayer, most often a person becomes exuberant, he becomes thrilled and delighted, and, and they're really full of thanksgiving to God. That's always the case in the beginning. That exuberance in thanksgiving and gratitude to God, with time, it begins to fade away. Right? Every time God's gracious act of answering that prayer comes to memory, to mind, a person says, oh, yeah, 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 Lord, I'm sorry. I thank you. I thank you for answering my prayers. That was many months ago, many years ago. And then as the pressures of life, more challenges, more difficulties we face, that gratitude begins to wane. And then occasionally, when the thought comes, it's, oh, yes, Lord, I, I thank you for what you've done back yonder. <laughs> and then, long time, long time after that prayer was answered, and you're facing a new problem, crushing problem, instead of going to the Lord and saying, you did this for me one day, you're going to do it again, thank you, Lord. No, we go back and say, Lord, I know you did this back yonder, but what have you done for me lately? In Luke chapter 17, we read about ten lepers, ten, all healed, all ten of them. Only one, a foreigner, a Samaritan, he was foreigner to the covenant, that is not part of the covenant of Israel. Only one comes back and says, thank you, Lord. And then the Lord saves him. So it's not healed his body, but saved him soul eternally, which is a blessing of gratitude. Literally, you can feel the emotions on the part of the Lord Jesus when he said, where are the other nine? Were they not ten? Why is only this Samaritan comes back and says thank you? Probably they felt that the world owed them something. But not David. Not David. David actually began to praise God and thank God before he could see any evidence of answers to his prayer. And he began to praise God, began to thank God. Some years ago, I was praying about a certain situation. And I prayed for a considerable number of years. 
not just for a few days and a few months. I prayed for a number of years, and many times during those years, I felt discouraged and exasperated, and I really wanted to give up. I knew in my heart that I'm praying according to the will of God. I knew in my heart I'm praying my prayer is consistent with the Word of God. But I become exasperated at times throughout parts of that period of time. And then I'll never forget I was sitting before the Lord and in prayer, and the Lord laid it on my heart. Start thanking me for answering that prayer. Start thanking me before seeing any evidence that I'm answering your prayer. And I began to thank the Lord. I began to thank Him in advance. In fact, that thanks in advance went on for 18 months, at least 18 months. And my beloved friends, listen to me, the devil taunted me. Do you know what, how the devil does that? How can you thank God when everything is going contrary to your awaited answer? How can you thank God? But thank God, He gave me the faith to persist. Isn't that great God we have? Isn't that great God we have? Give Him praise. What a great God we have. Without that faith that He instilled in my heart, I would have missed out on one of the greatest blessings. Look at verse 7. David said, My heart trusted. That's a past tense. I am helped. That's present tense. I will praise. That's a future tense. Based on his experience and knowledge of God, what he saw, how God protected him from the lions and the bear, how God gave him power over Goliath, based on his history and testimony experience with God, based on that knowledge of the character of God, David's supplication turned into seeing God acting, which turned into a song and singing to the Lord. Beloved, I know most of you know this, but we don't live our Christian life in a vacuum. We really don't. We are here today as a result of where we were yesterday. We will be where we'll be tomorrow based on where we are today. Not only did David begin to praise God before seeing evidence of answered prayer, but David was interceding for others. This is really important. People who only pray for themselves when they are in a fix or they are in trouble and they need God to help them, only pray for themselves or even their just close family members, only their needs, only their focus, only their… And they never pray for other people. They miss out on an incredible blessing. It is a blessing that before God, I cannot verbally put it in words. You have to experience it. Here I speak of what I know, what I experienced. Now, this is not to undermine the authority of the Scripture. This is to testify to the truthfulness of the Word of God. Praying for others, interceding on behalf of others, upholding the needs of others before the Lord. This has a special blessings that you cannot put in words. Praying for God's work, praying for God's people, 
praying for the things that are dear and near to the heart of God, this blessing is something you cannot truly tell another person about, because you experience it. You have to personally experience it. And so David concludes this prayer, this song, by interceding for others. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. I was thinking how a leader, a godly leader, intercedes and upholds the glory of Jesus, the believers. And I thought about two different queens in contrast to each other. When Queen Elizabeth II was celebrating her 50th anniversary of ascending to the throne, she acquiesced to certain members of her family, and she brought all sorts of rock and roll stars to sing another word about the glory of God. In fact, some of these singers, these rock and rollers, were not using the best of language, to put it mildly. Now, contrast this with Queen Victoria, when she celebrated her 50th anniversary to ascending to the throne. She requested from the head of the Madagascar delegation, who was known with a great voice, to sing. And so he got up and he sang. He sang a song that made Queen Victoria literally weep and tears streaming down her face. What was that song? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Now, the author of this remarkable song was a man by the name of Augustus Tipletti. He came to the Lord at the age of 16 in one of the districts of Ireland because at that time he was listening to a sermon entitled, The Lord Our Rock. Let me tell you a couple of things about this young man. Augustus was a very frail young man, had a very frail body, and he suffered from tuberculosis. His biographer said that he did not know one single day his body was free from pain. Now, one day, his world and his health were falling apart. He studied for the ministry because deep down he had real passion, real desire to preach the gospel. But sadly, his weak body forbade him from expressing that passion for preaching. He died at the age of 38, but not before blessing the world with these magnificent words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.